And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hi, everybody. I'm Harmony. I'm Maggie. Today we are reading. We are, we are Rebel Girls Book Club. That is our name. <laughs> we're a close reading podcast, if this is your first time joining us. And today we're reading a academic text that isn't written like poop. And it is called Vocational Awe and Librarianship, The Lies We Tell Ourselves by... I have never heard this person's name pronounced before, so I am sorry in advance if I mispronounce it, but I believe it's Fubazi Etra. Does that sound right to you, Miss Mags? I mean, Mix Mags? Yeah, that does sound right to me, so very sorry to Fubazi if we are both wrong. Yes. So, Maggie, what are your first impressions of this article? I feel weird saying this because this is very much genuinely an academic text but I really loved it and enjoyed reading it and I think that for me it's partially because I think that vocational awe is something that also shows up a lot in museum work this is a concept that I talk about a lot with all of my colleagues it's so pervasive in museum work that the board that I sit on is considering how we are thinking about changing part of our mission to really talk about vocational awe and its negative impacts specifically on workers. So I loved that. And then I also, so I was able to get some sort of insider feeling because of it, but then also I don't work in libraries, right? So while there is a a Venn diagram here, this also made me think differently about my relationship with my local library and the libraries that I've used and this idea of awe and the sacred space around the library that I definitely feel and that I didn't even realize that I was really perpetuating, but totally have been. So yeah, I think for me, it just felt very validating to see so much of this put into text and be studied, even if it isn't necessarily in my field. And also, it really just made me think differently about how a different institution that I use as a patron, how I'm perpetuating harm in some ways by the way that I think about it and and kind of all of these different interplays. So it was fun to read from both an insider and an outsider perspective simultaneously. Yeah, I really like that about this article and also this journal that the article is published in. So just for listeners, it's published in In the Library with the Lead Pipe, which is an open access and open peer review journal. And a lot of the academic texts that come out of it are similar in tone to this one and that they're readable (laughs) and you don't have to necessarily be a librarian in order to be interested in them because a lot of it has to do with information and access. So if you're looking for easy academic texts, that's a good place to stop by. But my first impressions of this article were kind of, I think, similar to yours, Maggie, in that I read it and I was like, Yes, thank you for putting words. And this article was published in 2019. So this idea has been out for, I believe it was 2019. Let me double check. 
2018, I'm sorry. So this article was published in 2018. So this idea has been out for quite a while now. But when I read it, I was like, oh my goodness, this describes why I love my job so much, but come home at the end of the day feeling so incredibly exhausted. And I think also really helped me confront and think more about what it means to be someone in our society who enjoys their labor. And as we'll talk about later, I'm sure, also kind of the myth that I think was particularly sold to the millennial generation versus other generations because we are one of the most educated generations. I mean, Gen Z is too, but they got to see the our fall. So, but this idea that you can be whatever you want to be, right? And you should find, you should work to, you should work to love something and, and, you know, find the thing that you love the most. And it's something that I apply frequently in my life because I think that just, that idea of loving what you do in work shapes so much of my identity and so many other people's, but is also something I'm able to better recognize now even though I kind of recognized it before, but better now, for its toxicity and ability to keep us underpaid. So, (laughs) that being said, I'm wondering if we can apply any of the syllabus questions to this text, even though we don't have main characters. I guess, so, our, our first guiding question is always, how much agency do our main characters have? And so I think in this text, our main characters would be librarians, but we can also apply this concept of vocational awe to other service workers, other underpaid service workers, like teachers or social workers, or yes, people working in any sort of nonprofit like museums. And Maggie, how much agency do you think our main characters have? Well, I think that, so I I think that to back up just a little bit, this article has two separate and inter- separate points that interlock together. The first being that vocational awe is and can be harmful to the individual who is working in librarianship and working in this position because it perpetuates this idea that basically passion can feed you, right? But then there's also this systemic issue of vocational awe where it can blind you to the fact that libraries are, and and again, you know, nonprofits, things like that, are all a part of the systemic issues in our country, and they're not free of white supremacy. And vocational awe can blind you to the places where that is happening and that your work is actually perpetuating injustice and how all of those things kind of interplay together. So I think that in terms of agency, it depends a little bit on who you are, right? One of the most salient points for me that the article makes is the fact that librarianship is largely dominated by white women currently. So, and part of the reason that that is, is because anytime that you have a sector, a field, a job that is underpaid and underbenefited, you by nature kind of have to be at a certain level of societal privilege to even entertain taking that job, right? 
this is a conversation that I've had with colleagues over the years so many times. And it's shocking to me every time how much it shocks other people when the light bulb goes off in their, in their head when I say that how can a job be equitable if it's not offering benefits because you're automatically excluding huge swaths of the population who would be great at it, who can't afford to lose their health insurance. This is pervasive across American society. And so in terms of agency, I mean, to a certain extent, there's a lack of agency in the sense that ostensibly most of us need jobs to survive under capitalism, right? So we got to start somewhere. But I think that your agency really depends on who you are and how much how much oppression you have to fight through in order to be able to get to librarianship. And then once you're there, then thinking about how basically seriously your voice is going to be taken. When you bring up systemic issues, this is something that the author talks about as well, is that women of color and librarians of color in general are often pushed to the side and marginalized within their own jobs, within their communities. Their expertise is pushed to the side, even as they're questioning the systems and pushing for the values that librarians are supposed to be standing for. So I think that this question of agency is that we're all limited because in many ways we all have to have jobs, but the choice to be able to take a job in librarianship or any field that is systemically underpaid and underbenefited probably implies that a lot of people who end up there have privilege in other places in their life to begin with. Yes. Snaps to Maggie. This is a conversation I have with Maggie and my other friends quite a lot as I'm dealing with what it's like now to be a librarian, which is a lovely career field. But the inequity aspect is really, really a big thing. And I knew that going into grad school, but it becomes much more present when you're working in a public library in particular, I think, because you're dealing with the public. So all inequity and you're dealing generally with the people and the people in the public who need you most you're dealing with a high need population because you're the only free institution that exists in this world but yeah mostly only white women a lot librarianship is predominantly dominated by middle class white women and that has been a thing for many years and I can say I work in a predominantly black area and a predominantly black city or subset of a city. And there are a handful of other librarians I've met that are people of color. And I am I'm go to my my library. I have a big, I'm a part of a really big library system, so I go to all of the new hire meetings and all of the new hire orientations. And we are living in 2023 when our library has actually made initiatives to try and fix this problem, and there is still a extreme and noticeable lack of people of color among the new hires, and. There's another issue that isn't really touched that much in this article, but librarianship as a field, in addition to being predominantly dominated by white people, has an access issue, which is weird for a field that's supposed to be all about access, because in order to become any type of librarian, the American Library Association, the American Library Association says that you need to have a master's degree. However, there are parts of librarianship that 
don't require the skills that you would need for a master's degree and also that makes it more inaccessible because lots of people can't go and get master's degrees and there are a lot of workers out there who are who work in libraries who do a lot of the work that librarians do who might not even have an associate's degree right and they just get paid less for doing the exact same thing and librarians aren't paid a lot to begin with so <laughs> these are inequitable institutions from a financial standpoint and then as the article delves into a little bit librarianism librarianship as or libraries as an institution or they come from enlightenment principles about how everyone needs to be educated and they were designed to educate I think she talks a little bit about white people or before that they were designed. I mean, libraries before that were religious institutions and they were for the rich. And then public libraries were designed to make sure that education was more accessible. But it was as a part of an Enlightenment era philosophy that everyone needs to be educated to become better citizens. So to serve the empire, essentially. So I don't know where I went with my thread, but that's my insight as a librarian. (laughs) I was not surprised by that aspect of the article because I already knew that librarianship as an institution was wholly unequal. But I think I was really struck by all of the religious undertones because I hadn't thought of libraries as sacred. But I have thought about my practice as a librarian as being spiritual in some way. And so I want to talk about that later, Maggie, but right now we can stick with the syllabus questions and we'll get to it if we have time. Yeah, I think that I was also surprised. I was I was both surprised and unsurprised in some ways by the religious, very specific religious undertones of libraries. It was one of those things where it was the author said it and I was like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. But especially as somebody who doesn't work in libraries, I never, ever, ever would have thought of that or made that connection myself, right? And I think too, in this era of self-care and trying to figure out where I can feel common at peace in the world, that's one of the ways in which I've been sort of upholding the sacred space idea of libraries, right? In that places where there are lots of books are the places where for me personally, I feel calm. I walk into my local library, I go there at least once a week, and it's just a wave washes over me, right? I'm happy to be there. And there's nothing wrong, I think, with a library being a a safe space, a space where I feel like I can relax and be myself. But upholding that idea of sacredness, I think, is problematic and something that I need to be unpacking for myself especially as somebody who works in a kindred field where when people say that about my museum, I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ. (laughs) I'm just here as one human. And I think that the place where agency here also overlaps is the way in which this sacred idea and the spirituality of practice, again, doesn't inherently have to be a bad thing. But when we think of libraries as this sacred place and as this place that is in some ways only inherently doing good work because its values are theoretically good, in what ways are we then becoming saviors and for Harmony and I specifically white saviors while we're doing our work, which is also a lot to unpack, you know? And it's and it's funny too, because I said that specifically about libraries, but for me too, 
I work in museums. I've always worked in museums. I walk into other museums and I have that same feeling, right? It's like I almost am divorced from this field. And it's because, you know, right now I work in history, contemporary art and art was my first love. I walked into an art museum last night for the first time in a while and I almost cried. I was like, yes, but do I really need to be ascribing that much feeling to all of this? And when I do ascribe that much feeling to all of this, how am I losing the humanizing aspect of the people who work there, both in the sense that they are people doing their best and they're not omniscient and they're not caring for these objects as if they are sacred, but also in the sense that they're human and they're fallible and not everything that this institution does is going to be inherently good just because I really like it, you know? And I, and on the one hand, you know that thing. And then on the other hand, you enter that space and it's like all of the things you know about the thing just fly out of your head because you as an individual are so happy to be there in your safe space. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I feel that way as much walking into libraries. I mean, I'm always excited about it. (laughs) And I do get that sort of hype thing. But I definitely feel that way when I'm in museums, art museums in particular, because it's it does feel it it does feel spiritual, right? To be connected to new arts. That's why you feel it for the books, right? You're you're somewhere where you can be connected to a ton of stories. And I don't think that in itself that comfort that we get from these spaces is inherently wrong. Like hearing hearing you talk about how you feel so at peace in a library, that makes me feel so good, but that's a part of the issue, right? <laughs> I think the problem is when workers and institutions themselves buy into this hype, right, and then refuse to evaluate it critically. And I think, oh gosh, I'm going to put people on blast here. I hope no actual librarians listen to this podcast. (laughs) I'm a part of a listserv group, and somebody wrote in the other day, a, a listserv library group, about proposals in the states for making libraries 24 hours which is a cool idea because we don't have community centers anymore they would be great sober places and I totally see that I totally love it yes let's support our public libraries but here's the reality of what would happen if we made libraries open 24 hours given the current constraints and systems that we have under capitalism (laughs) They would need a lot more staff. They would not hire enough staff because they never hire enough staff, right? And you would have people working jobs at 10 a.m. and also at 1 a.m. You know, people would be working crazy people shifts. And these are people just shouldn't. People just shouldn't have to do that, right? If, If somebody wants to work a night shift, they should agree to that. They should also be compensated for working a night shift, which should probably be more compensation. There wouldn't be as many librarians covering those shifts either. So you would get people who don't have maybe as much training or or tools, but also it would be people who are being paid way less. Yeah, it would be crazy town. The whole point, the point is that would be crazy town. And that was an instance where I was like, okay, we are treating, you are presumably in the field of libraries, or maybe this person is a student. And this is now where we need to recognize that we can't it, we can't save the entire world and the world needs to not expect us to save the entire world all we can do is fight for access for information and when we get more responsibilities we need to fight for compensation 
because that's just it's just not our job, right? When when we start when we start enabling institutions and and I guess even people, right? Because lots of libraries are tax funded and governments when we start enabling them to treat us as less than human as workers we are we are reasserting hierarchy within the system right we are reasserting that th- that this is okay we're modeling for the rest of the society that this is okay and we are devaluing our own work right which it just like that that's not how we do equity and access we're making things inherently less accessible because only a certain amount of people can do this work and everyone just deserves to get paid a fair and equal wage yeah okay i'm ranting a lot let me go to the next syllabus question (laughs) oh wait no i have more to say about that i'm sorry okay 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 you go ahead well, I was just going to say, I really resonated with that. And I think that something, because the article also talks about this as well, is that the library can't be every, can't be everything to everyone. And it's not because that it, it's a, it would be bad somehow to have a space that could be everything to everybody. It's because libraries and librarians are trained to do a very specific subset of things. And it's impossible to be an expert in everything. This is also a problem in museums. I've seen so many museums that have opened their doors and become emergency shelters that permanently become shelters for people experiencing homelessness, who also, as the article talks about, get trained in administering the anti-overdose drug naloxone, which is a name that I can't pronounce and I probably just did it wrong. So hopefully you know what I'm talking about. And on the surface of all of that, I think how wonderful that museums are doing what they can to be active partners in supporting their entire community. And then I think about what that means in reality, in terms of who is actually doing all of that work, who is not being paid to do all of that work. And I also think about the fact that none of us, you know, I've been through museum school, I went to museum grad school, I did it twice, I did undergrad and grad. You know, they never teach you any of those things. They don't teach you how to be a social worker. They don't teach you how to deal with a mental health crisis. They don't teach you what to do when you're in a public program and a 13-year-old tells you that they're feeling suicidal ideation. Those are things that I have dealt with. Those are things that you eventually are probably going to have to deal with. But I think that this, it, it speaks to this bigger situation where you want to be everything to everybody And there's a level at which, of course, you know, in that situation that I just mentioned, that's a really extreme example. That is something I actually had to deal with two jobs ago. In that case, you step up to the plate because there's a child who's clearly in crisis. You do what you can to do the right thing to help them. And you do what you can to do the right thing to help everybody. But this expectation that somehow because we're a community service, that we're also social workers, that we're also trained in mental health crisis, that we're also trained appropriately to really help people who are experiencing homelessness for whatever reason, is false. And it is wrong. And in museums especially, which are an especially hierarchical kind of organization in most cases, the people who are ultimately doing that work are paid minimum wage, maybe maybe have benefits, are largely part-time, or if they're full-time, it's kind of barely and it's maybe new. And the people who are often in those front-facing service jobs and kind of visitor services jobs are 
often minorities, either being people of color or queer people, meaning A, they are the people who are most at risk potentially for dealing with the public at large, but B, they're the people who are, again, being underpaid the most and kind of being shoved to the front lines with the least amount of training, not just in terms of museums, but just in terms of, you know, these these insane situations that they're being forced to deal with. And it's really hard especially because I've drunk the Kool-Aid, right? I'm in museums because I'm passionate about my work because I believe that the work that we do has the power to make positive change in some way. That's what keeps me getting up and going to work every single day is I'm not one of those people I think who can feel like I'm not making some sort of impact in the world. But all of that put together puts people in a really dangerous place. And I think it also puts institutions in a really dangerous place because you can't be everything to everyone. It's just, and- do that responsibly, right? What is the phrase? Jack of all, tra- uh, jack of all trades, master of none. I, I don't know. It just reminds me so much of, of of things that I've dealt with personally and the trends that I'm seeing in my field as well. I don't know how to actively serve my entire community in a way that feels like it's responsible and actually providing the services that my entire community needs. Yeah. So I don't know if the article addresses that. That I mean, I. Thank you. Yes, I agree with all of that and more. Even <laughs> even once you're hired, even when you're in the even yeah, I don't know. Even when once you're hired in institutions where you're supposed to get PD pretty often, information about mental health crises and real world stuff that would require some social work skills is not readily available because it, at the end of the day, it's a library and it doesn't get enough funding and we don't know how to deal with this stuff. We have one social worker in the entire region, you know? Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. It's job creep. <laughs> that, that was the part that I took from that part of the article was, was the job creep. It's not just about the, the extra librarian duties that you take on and become part of your job. It's sometimes about the extra social services that you take on and, and become part of your job. And because they're necessary for your community, suddenly they get roped into this job title of librarian or museum director or whatever you're doing, even though you genuinely have no trading in doing them. You know, job creep is weird. Yes. Yes, it is. I don't like it. I keep doing it to myself, which is a part of the problem. (laughs) So does this text give us a way to resolve, to resolve this issue? And if it does, does it do it by asserting hierarchy or subverting it? Or does hierarchy even matter? I think that the answer is Yes, that I think that the article starts with at least some ways to move forward. And I think that it does subvert hierarchy, right? Because I think that the whole point of, of grounding the article in the history of libraries and the fact that libraries are inherently institutions that have always meant to be exclusive and have slowly but surely over the years become institutions that are supposed to be the most inclusive in some ways is all meant to talk about the fact that hierarchy is still baked into all of our institutions by nature of the fact that it is an institution. And specifically with libraries, for many of them, they are heavily tied to the government in some ways. A lot of them get funding from the government. A lot of them are 
regulated by the government. That's a big difference between libraries and museums is that that's not really true of museums in the U.S. except for a handful of them, right? So for me, that's definitely one of those outside looking in moments. So I think that we we start by subverting hierarchy by actually acknowledging where hierarchy exists in the field instead of just trying to pretend that it, it that it isn't there. And then I think that some of the ways in which are, we're prescribed to move forward are to recognize where vocational awe lives in us and to do some personal work to not only better the lives of ourselves as individual workers who are potentially suffering with vocational awe, but to also see how vocational awe continues to hold up hierarchy in the institutions that we work in. And then I think as well, this idea of martyrdom and and, and how that relates to burnout are, are also, I feel like, really tied into that. And then I think as a field, some of the prescriptions that are put forward are making becoming a librarian more accessible. You're right that she doesn't talk about it a ton, but she does mention the fact that when she's talking about librarians here, she's not just talking about those who have master's degrees and are considered at the highest level to be librarians. It's about restructuring so that people maybe aren't undercompensated and underbenefited, so that you're actually being compensated fairly for your job instead of being sort of forced to be put in this, into this position where your passion is somehow supposed to pay the rent. Yeah, those are the things that come to my mind. Yeah, I agree. I think that we on a personal level right? If you're someone who finds yourself overworking, who finds yourself working despite your bodily needs, right? That's a thing that was very popular among me and lots of my friends during college, (laughs) where, you know, you would work despite your bodily needs and just ignore your bodily needs. If you're someone who is really passionate about their career and finds it hard to say no because you love doing what you're doing, but you're finding that this is draining you or that you're going beyond your paycheck time, beyond what you're getting paid for. I think that on a personal level, we all need to stop and be like, all right, let's scale down. I can't do that much, right? It's not It's not fair. I'm not getting paid that much. It's not healthy. So I need to figure out what the scope of my job is and only work within that scope. And also, I think that that's just a better success for doing better work, right? Because then we're less burnt out. So it actually ends up helping capitalism too, ends up helping your bosses. So I think that's part of it, right? We need to take away this overworking culture. I think also, like you said, we need to make institutions like librarianship more equitable, That could mean that we decrease education requirements. That could mean that we increase pay. I think what that means in general for you, no matter what institution you're looking at, whether it's teaching or museums or something else, we really need to support labor movements. And I do know that the field of librarianship, even though the ALA, don't shoot me ALA, can be deeply problematic (laughs) in lots and lots of ways. I think, you know, one of the things that they're moving towards is we as a field have just elected a new president for this professional organization that made her entire campaign based off of the labor movement and how libraries in particular need to be labors within the labor movement and fight for better pay and more access among our workers. 
So if you're just a general person, look at how you can start a union at your job. And if that's not something that is comfortable or you're, that you're ready for, look at ways at least that you can support other people starting unions at their jobs because it exists everywhere. So support that when you can. Lastly, what can we take from this text into our own lives? I feel like I kind of already talked about that. Do you think that this text has any prescriptions for the larger world? And also, is there anything else that you want to take into your personal life? I mean, I think that something that I'll probably be taking into my personal life is really, as I sort of mentioned, re-examining my relationship to some spaces that I feel are sacred and whether that is fair or healthy to anybody involved, including myself, because at the end of the day, buildings are just buildings and what they contain are largely objects. And that isn't an inherently bad thing, but it is a lot to be ascribing that level of meaning to those things. I think for me, in terms of vocational awe, short of actually leaving my field, I took as bold of an action as I could have for myself, which is that I really struggled with vocational awe. So I took a job that took me away from the kind of work that I feel the most passionate about doing and that I love the most. And that was a really big, crazy decision to me. And it felt like for a long time I was putting away my dreams. But now that I'm still involved in the field that I love, moving that work forward, but don't feel like it's my lifeblood, I have a much healthier relationship, not just with my job and my labor practices. So I don't know that I necessarily would recommend that for other people. I think that's a deeply personal choice. But for me, I think that it was necessary to move forward in a way that allowed me to genuinely be a human and have good work-life boundaries. And I think that for everyone, the prescription here is to examine one's relationship to their job, especially if you are in a job that you genuinely like. That doesn't make you a bad person or somehow a capitalist chill or something, but it does mean that you're going to have a different relationship to capitalism and a different relationship to institutions than others might. And I think really to remember, I think sometimes when you hear the words that taking care of yourself and taking care of oneself is actually can't have a community effect. Sometimes to me, that's hard to actually see and feel and practice being something that's actually actionable. But I think really, in terms of work labor and work practice, the people who overwork and overperform in that sense, really are doing a disservice to all of their co-workers. <laughs> and they're setting up expectations and they're perpetuating stereotypes that just aren't healthy or helpful for anybody. And so I would say as well, really examine your relationship with your work in that way. And if you're that coworker, maybe think about not being that coworker. <laughs> you know, this is where I think really a place where self-care is community care. Way to call me out, Maggie. Oh, okay. I mean, I've been, been that burned coworker too. Red. I left the whole job because I was that coworker. It's that shit's hard. <laughs> no, but Maggie's right. Yeah, we all need to do less. It's okay. No one needs to do more. Okay. Whoa, wait, wait. I'm sorry. I'm still recovering from this red hot burn. <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit before we wrap up. I'm going to go on a tangent here. I want to talk a little bit about the spirituality aspect, because as I was reading this the first time around, it struck me that perhaps, because Fobazi really only focuses on Christianity to talk about the sacred. She mentions Hinduism at one point, I think, perhaps. Yes, Maggie is nodding, so correct. But 
you know, the primary model here for why sacredness of the library is problematic is Christianity. And so as, as you know, a hippie witch, <laughs> I've found that my self-care, right, and my my joy for life and my anti-capitalist work really does depend a lot on my ability to find some sort of spiritual awe in it. And so I'm not saying this is right for everyone, but maybe other listeners can relate. I think that part of this is that we need to reevaluate our concept of what constitutes sacred, right? Because you can be messy and conflicting and still beautiful and magical, which I know is not necessarily the same as sacred, but for me it kind of is. So I think that we need to also understand that the institutions we love, the people we love, anything that we love a lot is still worthy of examination and critical thought. And that's kind of the whole mission statement of this podcast. So let's also, if if you are someone that's like, no, I really, if you're someone like me, <laughs> and maybe this will change someday as I grow and progress as a human, but if you're someone that really kind of needs that awe, that needs, although my definition of awe does not match the one that Fabazi gave in the beginning. I had never thought of awe before as being a kind of scary thing. But this idea of, oh, being confronted with something that's greater than yourself and that's part of what motivates you and makes your life happy, maybe consider rethinking the definition of sacredness and rethinking the idea of what it means to put your whole self in work, right? Maybe that means for you creating better boundaries. Maybe it means that when you make your to-do list, you include things that are going on your personal list or some sort of labor or work that feels kind of related to you but is outside of the scope of your work day. So that's something that I've been thinking a lot about. And yeah, that's my that's my prescription for this week. I think that what you said really sums up what to me so much of the point of this article was, which is that it's not bad to take pride in your work and to love what you do. What's hard and difficult to confront is that there's no such thing as something being inherently good in this world. And in order to make sure that you are doing good and having the impact that you want to be having, you have to be constantly evaluating and gathering data and not just assuming that because you are in a place that theoretically aligns with your values, that automatically what you're outputting is good into the world, right? And I think that that's really hard because I think that a lot of us really want to be doing good and want to be having a positive impact and want to be leaving the world a better place than it is. But first of all, no one can fucking agree as to what that would even look like. <laughs> and second of all, to do that, I think, in a deep and meaningful way requires constant evaluation and constant work of both the self and the institution while we are trapped in a place where institutions are tied to the way that our society functions. And I think that that's really, it can be hard, you know, it can be hard to read an article like this and not feel defensive, especially if you feel this really deep vocational awe. But to me, I think that when trying to think about doing good in the world, it's one of the most valuable things to think about and take in. And I think that that's especially true when you are somebody who is coming to the to the to the table with a lot of privileges like I am. So, yeah. I agree. All right, is that all we have for the people today? People have the power. People Yeah, that's the last coherent thought I have. My last okay. brain cell is trying its best, you know. 
All right, I've got to go finish dinner, which we're going to eat at 10 p.m. tonight <laughs> and clean the oh, house. Yeah. <laughs> All right, goodbye, folks. Goodbye, folks. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website rebelgirlsbook.club and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at rgbcpod on Instagram at rebelgirlsbookclub on Facebook at rebelgirlsbook1 on Twitter and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.